Now, we continue in our series in Genesis, and we're going to be heading to Genesis 5. So if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. Stephen will get you a Bible. Make sure it's nice and high so he can get it to you. If you don't own a Bible, the Bibles that we're handing out are yours to keep. And if you do have a Bible and you've just forgotten to bring it, I would encourage you to bring it next week because it will be helpful to use as we continue through our Genesis series. Uh, thanks very much goes to Owen covering last week's sermon in Genesis 4. And as I was uh, preparing for this week, I was reminded of a quote by John Wesley. And John Wesley said, Give me 100 men who hate nothing but sin and love God with all their hearts, and I will shake the world for Christ. Uh, the last year of the preaching class, we've had four guys who have walked through uh, multiple sessions with me. Uh, they've given their go at an online sermon, which, trust me, is a lot harder than it looks. And I have been truly blessed to be able to say that all four of them have really indeed uh, built their knowledge, built their skills. And last week we saw Owen indeed preaching on a Sunday morning. Uh, oh, that we would shake the world with faithful Bible teachers. Uh, this evening, Barnabas will be preaching his first time in person here. He's done one online and he'll be preaching. And it, it came across to me that often when it comes to an evening service, our average number is 10% of what our church actually is. Let me say this, you're not going to shake the world with 10% of faithfulness. Of course, there's genuine reasons why some may not be able to come out to a communion service. But we have young men who are training and skilling up so they can preach the word of God faithfully. We have a time around a communion table where we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and we faithfully are obedient to his words. 10% folks doesn't cut it. We are a church together. So yes, it's six o'clock at night. Yes, it's dark outside. But let us come together and let us shake the world through the word of God. Uh, if you feel chastised, let that be on your own heart. If you feel encouraged, praise God. So we head to Genesis chapter 5. So let's have those Bibles open at Genesis 5 and we can continue in our series. Over the last few weeks, we have seen God's perfect creation has entirely been destroyed due to the disobedience of Adam and Eve. It is their sin that then tarnishes the generations that come. Most notably, we saw last week through Owen's sermon that Cain and his anger and his jealousy kills his brother Abel. Sin has gone from temptation to now taking a life that was blessed by the creator God. At the tail end of chapter 4, we saw how those generations coming from Cain would then be marked by evil. Yet not all was lost, and we're going to find out today why it wasn't. As we approach chapter 5, at a very quick glance, just quickly glance in your Bibles, quickly glance through the verses. And what you're going to see is a long list of names and years. And you may be tempted to think we can just simply skim over those names and years and get to the great story of the great flood in chapter 6. Yet I want you to remember this one verse on the screen, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And I want you to notice these two words at the beginning of this verse, all scripture. Even the list of names and years in chapter 5 can be used for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 
And that is the beauty of the Word of God. With a right attitude and approach, each verse brings wisdom from God to our hearts and our minds. That's all to say, there is no chance that I can write a sermon that is interesting from a bunch of names and dates. It is only when we have the attitude of this is God's word and all of scripture, meaning every single number and letter will bring wisdom. So when we have that attitude, we can with anticipation and expectation seek to learn wisdom from God from chapter five. And as we work through the passage today, I want you to keep this in mind. Each one of us has a beginning and an end on this earth. And if it were not for Jesus, that would be the story, that we have a beginning and an end. Yet with Jesus, the end really is just the beginning. Confused? <laughs> Let's see where we go in Genesis 5. Let's turn our attention to Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now, here we have a link back to creation, where in Genesis 1:27, male and female are made in the image of God. We've said over the several weeks through this series that this is the design of God, two distinct genders that are blessed by God. As image bearers of God, we're to reflect the attributes of the creator in our lives. And if you've been following our series, these facts are scripture and they are not new to us. Yet in these two verses, we don't just simply have a repeat, but rather we have a marker of a beginning. Concentrate for a moment on the first few verses or the first few words of verse one. This is the book. It's an introductory phase that we not only see here, but we also find in the New Testament in Matthew 1.1 on the screen. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Henry Morris suggests that these two mentions of the word book refer to scripture, both pre-Christ in the Old Testament and post-Christ in the New Testament. And if we take that thought a little bit further, notice what is given, both here in Genesis 5, and if we had turned our attention to Matthew 1, we have a historical record of the generations coming from the Hebrew word toledot. You see, Scripture is both divine revelation of God and an accurate account of history. Genealogies, or let's just put it in a crude fashion, a bunch of names remind each of us of the interconnectedness of human beings. They show how we all track back to creation, to the moment where mankind was made in the image of God. Verse 3, when Adam had lived for 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Having had two sons in Cain and Abel, after Abel had been killed, Adam and Eve have another son whom they called Seth. Now the name Seth comes from the Hebrew Sheth, which means appointed. For it was appointed that through the lineage of Adam to Seth and on through the generations that followed, the son of God would be born. And I want you to notice this phrase, in his own likeness after his image. It's a familiar phrase, isn't it? We've seen it in Genesis 1. But Seth was not made in God's image and likeness, but in whose? Adam's. So what does this mean? Well, there is a positive and a negative. 
Seth and the generations to come would carry the image of God just as Adam had. They would be blessed as male and female, just as Adam and Eve had been. They would carry the likeness of the creator God, just as Adam had. However, now in the likeness of Adam, they would be tarnished with sin and the curse that sin brings. Psalm 51, 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Adam was no longer perfect. Rather, he was marked by sin due to his actions in the Garden of Eden. And this mark is now placed on the generations that followed. Original sin in Eden is now a global sin problem. Our interconnectedness as mankind is both a blessing, as we trace back to the Creator, and a curse as we continue to carry the sin of disobedience first found in Adam. As it says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. If you think here today that you're a good person that does not sin, here is the evidence that that is not true. Because we are made in the image of Adam, we are tarnished by original sin. Let's keep moving, Genesis 5 and verse 4. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, here we have the fulfillment of the mandate given to Adam and Eve by God in Genesis 1.28. They were to go forth and they were to multiply, filling the land, enjoying the creation of God. Now, not only is this fulfilled in Seth, but also in the other sons and daughters of Adam. We have absolutely no way of knowing how many other children they had, but noticing that it says sons and daughters, it's the plural, we can say that Adam and Eve had several children. That's the best we can come to at this stage. Now, a difficult part of these verses to get our head around is that Adam lived till he was 930. How is it possible to live to such an age when in our current age, Getting to 100 is pretty rare. Now, there are a few thought processes, some quite far-fetched, some maybe there's merit in them. But some have suggested that the years don't actually represent years, but instead represent months. Uh, we're soon going to find out how that is pretty much impossible, because it would suggest that some of the genealogies, people were having children at five years old. So that doesn't really work, does it? Others suggest that they are to be taken figuratively, meaning it's just simply painting a picture of how long time is. But again, this doesn't make sense, for we are presented with a factual and historical record of the generations. If we don't believe in Genesis 5, we don't believe it in Matthew 1. And if we don't believe it in Matthew 1, then you don't believe in Jesus. It's as simple as that. What makes most sense is to read the Bible for what it says, that these are literal years. Now, before the flood, bar a few exceptions, it was common to live till you were several hundred years old. It was after the flood that these ages began to reduce. In other words, the further we get away from creation, the quicker death comes. As sin enters and infects the whole world, remember, it's not just man and woman that were cursed. What was also cursed? The ground, the serpent. There was curses throughout the globe. 
as it begins to infect the world, not only does this cause distance between creation and God, but it brings decay to the perfection that God had created. Diseases increase and the whole earth groans as his beauty diminishes. The only reason that we can live as long as we do now is thanks to the common grace that God has provided through modern day medicine. Without it, our lifespan would be ever decreasing. William Tiptaft, a Baptist minister in the 1800s said this, it's a fairly stark quote, fit or not fit, we must all die. And we know not how soon as death leaves us, the judgment must find us. Folks, this is just a fact. Try to scare us, not try to just bring a dour look over things. This is the fact of life. We live and we die. After Adam, God continued though to bless through Seth. In a moment, I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter and I'm hoping you will follow in your own Bibles. As I do so, I want you to try and do a few things. Pick up the pattern of each generation. Consider what is being highlighted and where the emphasis is being placed. Remember, this isn't just a bunch of names. This is the word of God that corrects, that rebukes, and that trains. And I'm going to say well in advance, there are names here that for a poor Scotsman like me are really difficult to read. Feel free to chuckle along as well, because I think God has a sense of humor here. But let us read Genesis 5. I'm going to read through the whole rest of the chapter. And again, pick up the pattern, pick up the emphasis, pick up what's being highlighted. I'm going to pick up verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. And Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived... 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. 
Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, in these 10 verses, we have 10 patriarchs mentioned. Their ages are recorded, and the names of their firstborn son is given. The same list is found in 1 Chronicles 1.1 and Luke chapter 3, 36 to 38. Again, the Bible showing us that it believes in itself. It backs itself up. If you test Genesis 5, you will see 1 Chronicles 1.1 and Luke 3, 36 to 38, bringing further evidence. But when we pull these 10 patriarchs together, they represent over 2,000 years of biblical history. Further to this, what we can also say from taking from creation in Genesis 1 all the way through to the flood in Genesis 6-7, there is a total of 1,656 years. So the foundation is set in Genesis 1 and it's now being built upon in this generational arc. The earth and the years that it's been inhabited is at best then about 10,000 years old. Certainly not the millions of years that modern science and evolutionists state. Now, before we look at the pattern, there's an interesting and unusual aspect of these verses. Adam lived till he was 930. Therefore, he lived long enough to see Lamech, the father of Noah, live on the land. Therefore, it would have been Adam who had passed down the story of creation, how he walked with God, how he sinned before God, how he was thrown from the garden, and how he fathered mankind. Can you just imagine this? Your great, 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 great granddad telling you perfection. And it was ruined by your great, 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 great granddad. Can you imagine hearing the story how that temptation went to sin of murder? And how your great, 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 great uncle Abel died. What an incredible thought hearing from the first man who walked with God, how sin entirely ruined everything. But let's take another look at the pattern of these verses. Two aspects stand out. Each patriarch is said to have had sons and daughters. Did you notice that as we went through? And they had sons and daughters. The land is further occupied. Now, a few theologians have tried to estimate the generations of Adam in Genesis 5 into several million. Uh, Some have gone quite far and suggested that there are billions of people here in Genesis. I think that might be a stretch, but I think we can certainly say that before the Great Flood, there were certainly a large number of people on the land. But more striking than this is the pattern of the final words of each account. Did you spot it? It occurred in all but two of the patriarchs. Verse 5, 8, 11, 14, 17, 20, 27, and 30 all end in the same two words. He died. You see, there is a beginning to each showing how God is continuing life. Yet there is also an end because of the curse of Genesis 3. The pattern is therefore, as Billy Graham put it, you're born... You suffer, you die. This is the pattern of life. Not by design of God, but because of sin. You see, without Jesus, this is the story, folks. He died, he died, he died, he died. That's the story. Without Jesus, 
It's just death. Now, it's interesting, Miriam and I were having a bit of a chuckle uh, yesterday. I was saying the theme of Genesis 5 is death. And she said, well, that's maybe the way you're looking at it. She said, well, they're all born so they can all live. I was like, yes, but they all die. That's where the emphasis is. So maybe I'm just more of a Scotsman than I realize. You can take a positive note. Hey, they all lived. But you're still going to have to end with the same two words. They died. You can be positive all we like. We can put great new wallpaper on every single room of this. It's always going to end in the same way that they died. However, and this is incredibly important, there were two patriarchs that broke the pattern. And so we're going to focus our attention, our remaining time, on these two individuals. The first is Enoch. Let me read it again in verse 21 because I feel like punishing myself with names. But when Enoch had lived for 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Notice, no mention of death for Enoch. In fact, we are told that Enoch had escaped death. For one moment he was, and the next he was not. We're told very little about it, but we can head to Hebrews to find out a little bit more on the screen, Hebrews 11.5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Enoch escaped death because he pleased God by living by faith. We know that Enoch stood for God, for in the letter of Jude, we find the words that he prophesied. And I want you to get this. The words that he prophesied spoke about the second coming of Jesus. Notice this, not the first, but the second coming of Jesus. Not the first where he would pay the price for sin, but the second coming where he would return in victory to take his people to the heavenly realms. These were the words of Enoch. Let me read them to you, Jude 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Notice the phrase that is coming up in this prophecy, ungodly. Enoch stood for God, declared a prophecy, and the prophecy is, judgment will come, but so will victory. These words amplify the curses we find in Genesis 3 and show that the only way to deal death a blow and deal a blow to the curse is through the Lord, who will one day return in victory. Enoch, during a time when sin was increasing, declared the word of God, and through this faith, God was pleased to take Enoch rather than let him suffer death. Now, this is not to say that I've been teaching the preaching class, if they preach the word of God boldly, they will be, and then they won't be, and they'll skip death. That is not what is happening here. But in God's divine grace, he decided that Enoch had pleased him to the point of removing death from him. What we have in Enoch is a glimpse of understanding that there is life beyond death, one that can either be spent apart from God or with God. Now, the second patriarch, unsurprisingly, is Noah. Verse 31, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Now, Noah lived a long time before he had his sons, but notice the break of the pattern. It is not one son that is mentioned, but three. And that's going to be important for next week and the week afterwards. Further to this, other children are not mentioned. Neither is the death of Noah. That is because God was going to do something particularly special through Noah. His life was not simply a generational marker, but one that God was going to use for the sake of his own glory. And we have a hint to this. Look at verse 29. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now the name Noah means rest or relief. And there's a suggestion here that Noah would bring relief from the evil in the land. Owen mentioned last week when he was preaching that Eve thought she would immediately have the seed of God. She would immediately have this one that would bruise the serpent. Maybe we have another suggestion here. Maybe Noah is going to be the promised seed. Maybe Noah is going to be the one that deals a blow to the serpent. Now, of course, we know the promised seed of God is indeed Jesus. But in the time, there would have been a great expectation placed on the life of Noah. A life that you have to come back next week to learn about or read your own Bibles, one or the other. There we go, folks. That is a chapter of 10 generations, 2,000 years of life and death. So how do we apply a generational line to our lives this week? Are you just going to go into your studies or, or your home or your workplace and just go, folks, I've got a message for you. My granddad was, my great-granddad was, my great-great-granddad was. That would be simply just taking an academic view of just taking a list and applying it to our lives. There is far more to apply to our lives than simply a list. And here's the first one. We are to live for the sake of eternity. You live and you die. It is the fundamental truth that impacts each one of us. Yet between your earthly birth and your earthly death, you have a unique life in between. One that can never, get this, ever be repeated. It is therefore important to see what we do between our earthly birth and our earthly death matters. You won't get a second chance. This is it. My dad used to say, yesterday is gone. Tomorrow is not promised. All you have is today. So folks, how are you going to live today? Do you want to reflect this world? The endless negative news cycles, the constant pain and suffering, the desire to better oneself and somehow put your mark on this earth? Or do you want to reflect eternity, the presence of God, the bright shining light that is Jesus and the everlasting praise of his name? Folks, over the last two years, I have done four funerals. And I tell you this, each was a Christian and each said exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Some, it was an hour before they passed away. Others, it was two days before they passed away. They all said this, I can't wait to meet Jesus. I wonder, should that not be our every day? Are you excited right now to meet Jesus, anticipating his return? Or are you more interested in rushing home to make sure that meal is not getting burnt for who you're having for lunch? 
Let me read out Revelation 5. Okay, I'm going to read out some verses from Revelation 5. And I want to show you what it means to be constantly thinking with excitement and anticipation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 5. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Is that really how we're going to respond to the word of God? Deathly silence? This is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is prophesied by Enoch in Genesis 5 to return a second time in victory. So we are to stop living for tomorrow. We're to start living for eternity. Isn't that song, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be? When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Why don't we do that now? Yeah, live the way the world lives if you want. Check out BBC News, you'll see how miserable they are. Look at some of your faces, you can see how miserable you are. <laughs> This is Jesus we're talking about here. This is God's plan. That even when Adam and Eve sinned, he had planned a generation to bring about his promised son. A son that would defeat death, that would defeat sin, that would free you from the chains and pangs of this world so that you would enjoy victory in his name. So you can look at this list and you can just see names upon names upon names. Or you can look at this list and you can say, do you know what? I can trace my name back to Adam. And because I can do that, I can trace it right back to Jesus Christ and our creator God. We are to live for eternity. What a difference that would make. What a difference that would make. I wasn't planning to say this, so apologies. I'm going slightly off notes now. But <laughs> it's not unusual for me. But as Miriam and I plan to head to the States to study more, it has been a heartache in the short term because we're going to have to say goodbye to a lot of people and a lot of things. Now, if we were living for tomorrow, that sacrifice would be too great. It'd be too difficult. But we don't live for tomorrow. We live for eternity. And because we live for eternity, what I have to do before my, between my birth and my death matters. And it matters that we study to such a depth that we can go to God's word and we can share it with people to such a high level, to such a place where they too would look at the word of God and go, my word, I finally understand. Folks, when we live for eternity, every risk is worth it. Because I love you all, but you're not better than eternity with Jesus. Second, we're to walk with God. It is important to see that walking with God is central to faithfulness. And we first see the attribute with Adam and God walking together in Eden. Then we have Enoch walking with God, pleasing God in the way he's living. And then finally, we see Noah, who we'll see next week, please God by walking in his ways. 
To walk with God is to live for God. Yet it's more than that. It's an acknowledgement that everything in your life, everything you have and do and think and say is for God. Every aspect of the way you live both pleases God and points to the gospel that saved you from your sin. Now, D.L. Moody said this, if I walk with the world, I can't walk with God. Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? Adam. He walked with God, then he walked with the world, and then he hid from God. There is no fence sitting here. Either you live a life and behavior of this world, and therefore ultimately for the serpent, or you live a life and behavior that is for God, and therefore for his glory. At Romans 12, first two verses say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And let me ask you this, folks. Are your bodies holy and acceptable to God? I'm not saying these silly little advertisements of, are you beach ready and all this sort of rubbish. But do you live, move, and think in a way that pleases God? Or have you been conformed to this world? Let me put it more plainly. The Lord commands each one of us to be transformed, to think through every action and every deed and consider what is honoring to God. I tell you, if we truly honored this command, there would be no such thing as church politics. There'd be no such thing as backbiting or selfish ways or arguments or watering down the gospel or twisted theologies or degrading God's holy and perfect word. Because if we stopped to think, to acknowledge God in all things, I think all churches would be a very, very different place. To walk with God is not saying, I am saved, so let's do what I like. It is to walk with God is to say, I am saved. Now the Lord is transforming me. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. Uh, if you're visiting here this morning, excuse me for just going into something a little bit more personal in terms of our own church family here. Uh, one of the greatest struggles I have had in the last three and a half years, and possibly one of the regrets, and I've shared this with one of our leaders, is I've never really been able to get our church members' meetings flowing in a blessed way every single time. It seems to be that we have one good one, and then we have one bad one. And I think often it happens because we come together, and I put myself in this, I am saved so I can do what I like. And I think we need to learn, and I hope, I hope we learn, that we will say, I'm saved, and therefore I am being transformed. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. So I'll watch what I say, what I'll do, what I'll think, how I behave, who I am. Because I seek to honor God. And I put my hands up saying, church family, I'm putting myself in that bracket. Something we've not done well together over the last three and a half years. And I pray it's something that we will improve on. Third and finally, proclaim to the generations. Uh, genealogies teach us one important thing, the need to tell the generations the truth. 
And let me for a moment speak to parents just right now. I'm speaking directly to parents. If you think your children are going to be God-honoring, gospel-believing, Jesus-proclaiming children by simply going to a 35-minute junior church each week, you are thinking wrong. God has placed you uniquely as your children's parents. You have responsibility, and I add, a great privilege to teach the next generation about Jesus and what it means to live for him. Yes, have daily devotions. Yes, tell your children over the dinner table about Jesus. But more than that, more than that, proclaim the gospel through how you live as parents. Again, William Tiptaff, really helpful here. Children take more notice of what their parents do than what they say. Isn't that true? Actions speak louder than words. Your children will notice when you can't be bothered to come to church or you don't pray before a meal or when you are miserable in serving the Lord at church. They will equally notice when you praise Jesus, when you sing worship songs, when you get excited about church and when you daily read your Bible in that corner armchair in your living room. We are to be an example of a gospel-believing, Bible-reading, on-fire Christian so that our children, our next generation, will grow to understand the love of Jesus. Now, a word to the rest of the church. You have two choices. You can look on the families, on the next generations, and the children in the church, and you can grumble at the noise that they make. You can make comments of how untidy the row is after the family has left from the service. You can make comments about how, in my day, I won't finish that. (laughs) Or you can take this moment to realize that in Genesis 5, in the genealogy, in the generations, you are given a monumental part of the church family. You are the example that the parents look to. More than that, you're the example that the children look to. I'm going to finish my sermon. I don't often do this. I'm going to finish my sermon with two very short stories. The first one is uh, we once served in a church where a young family attended, a very small church. We're all elated that this new family came to church and they were all there. They brought their little boy with them, really excited. Everything seemed to go well until at the end of the service, at coffee and tea time, the boy got a little bit too excited and tossed his juice across the table. Now, the church looked on in shock horror. Uh, Miriam and I kind of going, oh, like, what do we do here? Quickly sorted everything out and we moved on. Do you know that family never returned to church? Simply put, it was everyone in the church was miserable towards them because of that one cup throw. They still don't attend church. And that's eight years later. Oh, that we would shake the world with people who love Jesus. The second story, and, I, and I'm going to close with this. Uh, growing up, I attended Crubbers Christian Center. Um, my parents set me the example of what it meant to love unconditionally. Each Sunday, we were excited to go to church. And each Sunday, without fail, my parents would invite people up for lunch. It was quite funny, really. It started with a few people of just my dad saying to mom, by the way, so-and-so is coming for lunch. And soon it became over 50, 60 70 students at a time coming for lunch. It was mayhem, 
but it was truly inspiring as people got their chili con carne and just find somewhere in the house they could sit. Whether it was on the stairs, I still to this day remember two guys debating theology over chili con carne on the side of the bath because that was the only place you could sit. I heard the conversations. I saw the prayer times. I learned that I had many big brothers and sisters in the church. I watched how some of them went off to university, how some of them trained to be missionaries, how some became pastors, and even how some died still proclaiming the love of Jesus. The combination of my parents' examples and the church example around us helped me deal with the trial of losing dad at the age of 13. And here's an incredible thing. When he died, students from all over the world came to his funeral. Students from New Tribe's mission asked for a special day off to get the first flight in the morning and the last flight in the day so they could attend the funeral. I still even remember them standing there. They didn't even have a suit because they didn't have suits. They were students. Those students are now lecturers at New Tribe's mission. Folks, you either live setting a horrible example of what it means to be a Christian, or you live as one that inspires the next generation. I'm truly grateful that I was inspired, but my question to each of us today is, by your example, are you inspiring, or are you turning away our young people coming to Jesus? I want to really consider that. Your credentials don't really mean anything. Your today means something. So the kids are going to be coming out of junior church. The junior church teachers are going to be coming out. How are you going to respond to them today? Is it all going to be about how many biscuits they managed to nab off the table? So if it is, you'll have to come and see me because my girls will be right there. Or is it the joy and privilege that we have to say in a hundred years time, if the Lord doesn't come back sooner, and I hope he does because it makes life a lot easier for us, but in a hundred years time, they'll turn around and they'll look back and they will list the names of the examples of men and women of God that inspired them. Folks, if we get this right, if we actually get this in our hearts and our minds, something truly special will happen. I truly pray that the Lord is convicting you, that he is transforming you, and that he is igniting in you a desire to not just be, I came, I lived, I died, but to be, I came, I have the privilege of living for Jesus. And when I die, hey, that's just the beginning. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. But Father, today I want to thank you for the faithfulness of godly examples. I want to thank you that you have changed and transformed lives. And we can look at those individuals and we can truly be blessed by them. Father, it's not necessarily normal to name names. But just in this moment, Father, we have a connection with New Tribes Mission. We have students here today. We have had many years of faithfulness, of gospel work going around the world. And so, Father, I just simply want to thank you for two men 
for Stephen and for Simon, for their example they set me and the inspiration they set me in in my early years. Father, I pray that each one of us will have people in the future that will turn around and will thank you for our inspiration to their lives. Father, let us not be a miserable bunch. Let us be filled with joy. Let us know that even though Genesis 5 has the theme of he died, he died, he died, Scripture has the theme of we live, we live, we live because of the victory of Jesus. And so, Father, tonight as we come to our communion time, and Father, I do say we, because we want to come as a church family, not just 10% of the family, but as the family together, so we can enjoy and celebration say, he came, he died, he lived. And so, Father, I pray that in the coming weeks of change at LBC, that this one truth will hold, that this one truth will never, ever slip. That Jesus is king. And because he is king, we get to live. And so I pray this in your name. Amen.